Lord, it's interesting that you look at our hearts. You know, because when we look at our hearts, if we're being honest with them, um, our frailties are annoying. <laughs> Every heart at its core without Jesus is an enemy of the cross. But because of Jesus, you have made it a friend of the cross and of you. And in light of that reality, when you look at our hearts and theological reality because of Christ, you see him. And God, we thank you that because of Christ, our hearts don't remain the same, though. <laughs> but you transform us and make us new. And give us responsibility to put off the old heart and put on a new heart. So, God, we don't, we don't walk in depravity. Um, Christians are no longer depraved because of Jesus. No longer totally depraved. If we're totally depraved, we're not Christians. Um, you have removed depravity. However, the impression and impact of it still has residue. So, Lord God, help us to submit the depths of our hearts to you so that the way you love you, you look at the depths of our hearts and love us the same, but help us not to be the same because of Christ. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Y'all all right this morning? Y'all all right? Where y'all at? Y'all in the building with the Lord Jesus Christ gathered together. Um, Everybody all right this morning? Our graduates in the building. I'm excited about folk graduating. Being able to go into a different phase of life, it's all, always a blessing um, to experience graduation. Um, it's funny, on graduation day, you're nervous, but you're not doing nothing but walking across the stage. It's like what you're nervous about, unless you're giving an address. Now, that's a different thing. Um, but it's exciting to um, just see so many different schools graduate. We have represented Temple. We're Temple graduates. Yeah, Temple. UPenn. Drexel, Rowan, PBU, LaSalle, anybody else I missed? Montclair, Eastern, Messiah, uh, uh, Community College of Philly, Art Institute. Wow, there's a lot of colleges and universities and uh, Lincoln Tech. You know, I want to include everybody. You know, I want to, you know, I ain't trying to exclude, you know what I'm saying? Anyone? Yeah. Well, well, today, well, today, um, today is a, is a great opportunity as we're going to be getting back and continuing in this series. A couple of things just for the summer as our college students leave. How many of you college students are leaving in the next few weeks? How many of you leaving? Going home? Anybody? Wow. Nobody? Going anywhere? Leaving gone for the summer? Staying? Y'all gone? Anybody? Wow. One. Okay. Okay, everybody else here. Wow. Well, what we may have to do is we, in light of the first gathering, we, we started the first gathering um, um, to um, basically offset the numbers in this gathering, gathering so that more people can get into worship and uh, we don't be like sardines in a can. And so we started that gathering. So in light of the summer months, this was our first time doing a, um, a, a gathering of this sort, and so, which is a, basically another gathering on or service. At nine o'clock, and so summer months we tend to dwindle 
in and out type stuff. So we may merge the gatherings for the summer. Just so keep it lifted for real, for real. And then uh, re-up back in the fall, all right? So we ain't doing that yet, so don't be announcing and carrying on. If it ain't on the website, don't be announcing. Amen. And so, so, so we're really, really thinking about that just so that our, especially so that our team can have some rest also for the summer. But look at the team. They're shaking their head. The people that serve going like this. The people that don't serve, they're just like, I don't even care. I'm just going to come. You know what I'm saying? But everybody else um, who actually serves, they're like, yo, you know, that would be a blessing. So, so keep us in prayer about that. But we do have a lot coming up in the summer as it relates to outreaches and that type of thing. Well, we're in the scriptures. Um, we're in 2 Corinthians 9. We're back in it. Diving in. Um, and today we're, today we're, we're finishing up. Um, we'll, we'll only get through portions of this. There's no way that I can, I can preach all of this today. Um, really, each verse can be a sermon by itself in this section of the series. And so I'm not going to do that. And so um, I'm not going to try to feed you water through a, high, a drink of water through a fire hydrant. So what I'm going to try to do is try to kind of kind of kind of chop this up a little bit and, and, and give us some clarity on some things but as we've been looking in our stewardship series we've had under stewardship the idea of giving and we remember that stewardship is a response to God's ownership that means God owns everything and because God owns everything he gives direction of how it should be used Jesus Christ being a, 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 a co-leader of the universe united leader of the universe um, um, in the Godhead um, participated in creation as the conduit for creation based on Colossians 1. Everything was made for him. Therefore, in light of that, he got a plan for it. He redeemed the people, called the church, to draft them on his eternal team so that him as creator God would give us things in our sphere about people, places, and things to see the gospel get to it and us utilize it and maximize it to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a steward, to maximize everything and manage everything in your life to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you don't own nothing. Nothing. Nothing in your life you really own, even though there is ownership in relation to man. In other words, you talk, like if you say, I own this house or I own this car, you're saying that in relation to man, not God. Um, um, and we understand what we mean when we say that, but really you have been give, given specific stewardship over something specific. Amen. And, and, so, and so in light of that, we have been talking about multiple areas of our lives in which this idea of stewardship impacts. So under the umbrella of our series, we've been talking about giving. And one of the things that we've been um, listening in our philosophy of giving is helping really reshape it because jokers on television have jacked up giving to the point where giving is the reason for giving. And so what we wanted to do is not skip over that, because if you're going to be faithful to the Bible, you got to preach everything that God says. So you don't ignore it because it's been improperly communicated. What you do is you properly communicate it. Amen, somebody. And so, and so today we're, we're diving into the last Sunday. Forgive me for my legs. I just started this P90X. And, and my thighs and quadrilagians, they, they are on lockdown right now, so... If I walk a little slow, just pray for your boy, because I'm in, I'm in excruciating pain. Um, but to God be the glory for hopeful weight loss. Amen. <laughs> stewardship, stewardship. I got to remember stewardship. Stewardship. I was just telling some of the elders, we got to get these guts down, because we want to die based on God's providence, not just some foolishness. You know what I'm saying? Because we ate what we wanted to eat. Somebody, I just enjoyed life, and I'm dying. 
That ain't God's providence. That's foolishness. Amen. Somebody, ought, somebody should be saying amen on that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, ain't nothing worse to no big, hard-breathing preacher. <sighs> that's, that's, ain't, God ain't in that. God ain't in that. But you're talking about everybody else's addictions, and you massive. Come on. Let's help out somebody. I'm just being, it's the Bible now. It's an idol, and I, I need, I, I'm trying to get the, the flabberations gone. Amen. I want, I want, I want my wife, I want to get an eight-pack for my wife. Amen. Amen. Look at you turning red and carrying on. <laughs> I love that woman. Chapter, chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. Um, verse 9 states, it says, As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service to, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. I want to I tag this um, today, the results of kingdom giving. The results of kingdom giving. One of the things that we've seen is, biblically, um, there has been an abuse of the results of giving. Results of giving has been reduced to personal return for personal enjoyment of God's creation. Now, on, on one level, from a theological standpoint, that's true based on First uh, Timothy chapter 6, the latter part before the doxology part of that passage. Um, however, that's only a result, but that even our enjoyment must be fueled by God's truth. It shouldn't be selfish enjoyment. It should be an act of worship. And so it's been so reduced that all of what giving does have been reduced to personal passions being expressed. And so I believe Paul is going to chop for us in a, in a real way. Uh, 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 he's, going to, he's going to magnify the beauty of the results of giving. Now notice I, I named it kingdom giving because kingdom means God's comprehensive rule over all creation. When Jesus Christ came on the scene and he said, repent, metanoia, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was announcing the fact that God was going to transform the creation based on his gospel and bring the comprehensive unseen rule of God to be seen. Now the church is the announcers of that reality and the conduit by which he shows off the kingdom Already here, but not yet fully, not yet fully here. Are you with me? And so, and, so, and so as we talk about the results of kingdom giving, Paul is talking to a spiritually immature church who has some mature people in it, though. 
Many times Corinthians is preached as everybody was spiritually mature, immature. There was a group of mature people in the book, and 2 Corinthians emphasizes that. And he's gotten into the section on the book to really talk about giving. And he's used this opportunity to help the Jerusalem church come through a very, very difficult financial season um, for the church. The church was growing numerically, but the finances weren't growing numerically. And because of that, what was coming in and what was in Jerusalem wasn't enough to help do what God wanted to do in that church. And so <coughs> Paul pulls out his apostolic bullhorn and begins to call for the Gentiles to help the Jews. Crazy. That's, that's, that's crazy gospel stuff. That's a, that's a whole other sermon. And when, 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 the, when, when, the, when the recipients of the gospel bless the ones who sent them out to do the gospel. But, 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 but as, we, as we get in this section, there's some very, very key things as we close out this section of the series today on giving that I want us to really see. So when you look in verse 9, which I, I, got, I got a few points today. I got more than one point. Like I usually only have one. Got a few more than one today. Your giving outlives the giver. <laughs> Your giving outlives the giver. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, as it is written, he has distributed freely. Stop. Now, this idea here, or this, this is a quotation from an, a, a, a passage in the poetic literature section of the Bible called the Psalms. Psalm 112, 9, this is a quotation of it. Now, Paul, uh, being a good, uh, a, a good at hermeneutics, and Bible study methods never rips verses out of their context. But there's a, there's a beautiful context to Psalm 112 that he used to import into this section that he's about to tell us about. Y'all still with me? And so, and, and so in verse 9, he says this statement. But you got, in order to understand verse 9 and to appreciate it, you've got to see verse 1 of Psalm 112. It says in verse 1, praise the Lord. Bless is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. I, I, I like that. Praise the Lord. In other words, in other words, bless his name, worship the Lord. He starts the psalm off, and I'm, I, I'm scared that I'm going to spend too much time in the psalm because I'm, I'm getting real excited right now. But he says, he says, praise the Lord. In other words, he invokes a response from man based on who God is. That's what he started. He said, because of who God is, praise him. Then right after that, he said, he says, blessed. That word there, blessed, means happy. In, in other words, a person, a person that's rocked by God, a person that is a hedonist of God, a, a, a person that believes pleasure in God means to get true pleasure in every area of life. Blessed or happy is the man who fears the Lord. How in the world can a person that fears somebody be blessed? Well, you got to understand what fear means. Fear means to stand in awe of the reality of God. In other words, when you look at him, when you, when you look at every part of him, not just the parts you like, but all of him, it invokes you to worship. It invokes you to Shabbat. It invokes you to give. So, 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 so when it's passed, he said, blessed is the man who stands in all the reality of the one they're in a covenant with and who greatly delights in his commandments. I like that. In other words, he likes his word. 
And he has affections towards his word that's not just intellectual or volitional, but he actually likes it, not just loves it. So, so, so in the context of this passage that we're looking at right here, we see that this is being used to point to a beautiful layout of what the psalm is about. The psalm is specifically about the characteristics of the godly. Now, in verse 9, it's going to say a bunch of stuff in the psalm, but to zoom in on this passage, in this passage specifically, Paul is using giving freely as a characteristic of one who stands in awe of the reality of God. And so when he says give free, distribute it freely, it's interesting. It means to scatter abroad and locally. That's what it means. It means to scatter abroad and locally or, or far and wide. And, 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 so, and so when we look at that reality, you've got to understand the law. See, they gave specifically the tabernacle slash temple. But then at the edge of their lands, based on the Levirate law, uh, um, they wouldn't glean. Now, let me give you an example, because I know this is out of, we in the city, it's grimy, it's trash, it's bricks, it's buildings, it's metal, it's mortar. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the road going out and you saw like a cotton field or a tobacco field or a cornfield, right? And in and, and their, and their day, what they would have done is they would have harvested over two-thirds or 80 to 90% of everything up to the edges of the field. And so we, because they would do that, is, is they would leave it so that strangers, when they came past, who didn't have resources for themselves, could pick during harvest season for free stuff. And this was missional on both ends, to take care of the lesser in the community of God's people, number one, but number two, to show people who don't know Jesus or don't know Yahweh the beauty of what he's like because he's a giver. And so it'd be like you driving down to Lancaster, you know what I'm saying? You're like, I'm hungry. Pull over, and you go over to somebody's cornfield and take some of their corn out. Now, don't do that because, because you may hear some buckshots whizzing past your ear. You'll find yourself running back into your car and pulling off very fast and words that aren't godly coming out of the mouth of someone coming from a front porch with dogs flanking them, okay? So, 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 so don't do that. But in their time, that was normal. That was a normal thing to do in order to show love. So he's saying this person scatters in a way that impacts local people, but people beyond there. So they freely give. But then he, but then he goes down and he says something powerful that Paul builds on in relation to this idea we're on. He says he has given to the poor. In other words, he gives to people who can't give back to him. He doesn't, he's not manipulator. He's not an oppressor. His righteousness endures forever. That's, that's, that's booming right there. Now, now, forever in the Old Testament doesn't mean the same as it does in the New Testament. Forever in, in, in law, prophets, and writings means a long time. The, the, it wasn't necessarily a developed idea of eternity in the Old Testament. So it means from generation to generation. So that when you give, the impact of your giving either brings someone to Christ or encourages them in their relationship with the Lord. And what happens is, is as they grow based on the impact of the giving on them, they in turn give and the cycle continues. And what happens is from generation to generation to generation, people look at giving bigger than themselves because of the impact of your giving on them. Powerful. P powerful stuff. Because I know that we always hearing about giving, impacting you. You're going to get a Lexus. You're going to get a house. 
You're going to get hardwoods in your house. You're going to you're going to get new gators. But but that's that's menial impact. That's punk impact and actually none impact because nobody's impacted by you driving a nice car. Some of Christians in order to be missional. They don't even use that word, but in order to be a missionary, people are not going to look up to you if you don't have nothing. Wow. So Jesus, anyway, what's up with Jesus? Okay. So, and so, and so it goes further in this, in, 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 in this, and he says, next point, God, he re-resourced, God re-resources the giver for giving. Now I put a, I put a dash there. So it kind of, I know y'all saying that's not a word, but that's the nature of what's going on in here. He re-resources the giver for giving. Look in verse 10. It says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now, uh, remember how we were talking about last week. We don't want you to allow bad interpretations or use the word, using the, hearing the word sowing and reaping, how it's been used negatively to impact how we view it. Because it is a biblical term, we must not ignore it but redefine it. So, um, based on this idea here, it, 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 it's interesting in this text that he says, he who supplies seed to the sower. That's interesting. Why didn't he say resources? Why, why didn't he say loot, money, cheddar, stuff? Basically, he's emphasizing the fact that when God gives to the believer something, he's booby-trapped it to not just stay with him or her. Okay? In other words, God gives us seed. I know this is hard for us to jump the fence on this, right? Check it. So if you own an apple patch, you was making money, your business was growing apple trees. Now, it would be dumb to eat all the apples and make pies and give away stuff and sell them, right? What you would do is you would take seeds from it and replant it so that there will be something to harvest the next time, correct? So, so you wouldn't just take it away and, and that's everything. You make sure you wouldn't cut down the trees like let's nah. You would continue to re-sow based on what was given in so there can be a return on that. He's saying that the, God supplies the sower. That's us. Every Christian is not just a missionary, but every Christian is a sower. A sower. And God gives every Christian seed in different proportions. All of us. And that seed is not just for you, even though he does say he gives it for bread, for food also. In other words, he takes, he gives, when God resources the Christian, when he gives Christian resources, he gives you bread for food for you, but he also gives within the framework of that giving seed so that you can replant it. And therefore, God re-returns on that in multiple different ways so that you can continue the succession and process of giving. That's what he does. And so God will make a way for others through us. And we'll talk about that in a second. And it says he will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase your harvest. Remember, we talked about last week that harvest is broader than just what you gave. Some people quote, give in, give it, and then she'll be given back to you. Press down, shaking together, running over back. You go measure here. I'll give it back to you. Right. That's Luke. Now. When you look in that passage, it, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with giving money. It means in the, in the text, the return is really on when someone badmouths you, 
when someone talks raggedy about you, when they cuss you out and act a fool, you don't return that back on them. And what happens is if you sow what they're not sowing to you rightly, God will return back to you that from them. They'll shut up talking. They'll shut up running their mouth. So I don't have time to spend time on that, but I would like to one day. Amen. Praise God. But then it goes and it says, it will increase the harvest of your righteousness. Beautiful stuff. Beautiful, 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 beautiful stuff. And so, so when, when he does this, he's not talking about, he's, when he's talking about increase the harvest of your righteousness, you got to understand he's not increasing you spiritually. In other words, it, 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 your giving doesn't, doesn't give you right standing with God. Stay there. Your giving doesn't put you in right standing with God. God doesn't like you more because you give more. God loves you as much as he's ever going to love you. (laughs) God decided to love you before you gave anything. So your giving doesn't make him love you more. Y'all got to understand that. Some of y'all don't realize that. Because some of y'all been taught that to be in a relationship and right standing with God, you got to give. But that's called legalism and an enemy of the cross and another gospel. But, but, but we give because we're in a relationship with God, not to get in a relationship with God. So therefore, we give because we're already righteous. Now, I'm explaining this. Now, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, based on if, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. What does justification mean? It means the declaration of the sinner, the depraved person as a righteous, without them doing anything because of faith in Jesus. Oh, yeah. See, that's powerful. So therefore, righteousness has been given, not earned. So you're already right now as righteous as you're ever going to be because of Jesus. However, God has to practically up you to that righteousness so you'll look like what he sees when he looks at you. Okay, so when you give, it doesn't grow you, it shows you. Let me explain that. There's extrinsic righteousness and there's intrinsic righteousness. Intrinsic righteousness is what Jesus gave you when he died on the cross and you believed in him. You were given true righteousness. In other words, you brand spanking new, clean, gorgeous. All right? If there's any flaw in you, there is no flaw in you in relation to Jesus Christ, even though there are practical flaws. That's what sanctification for and God's patience is for, right? So, so that's, that's what that's for, okay? So, so now, however, you can't just say I'm a Christian and, and I got the righteousness of God and I'm going to heaven and there be no fruit of that reality because God didn't save you to floss going to heaven, he saved you to floss the one who's in heaven. So, that's, that's intrinsic righteousness. You are righteous because of Christ. I want you to get that in your head. You don't earn anything in the Christian faith. It's given by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. Now, when we talk about extrinsic righteousness, because we talk about intrinsic, extrinsic is because you are righteous, you give. That's why he says, that's why he says in the passage, in the latter part of this verse, he says, he said, I will increase the harvest of your righteousness. In other words, what it looks like for your righteousness to be shown off, really, it's not yours. Did you know that? 
the harvest of your righteousness is really his righteousness that he's loaned to you and that he'll never take back. He'll never take his righteousness back. So therefore, from, from there, so therefore, in that, in that idea of him making us righteous and him increasing the harvest of our righteousness, it means the fruits and results of our righteousness, which in this context points to, based on the intrinsic righteousness giving, which is a form of extrinsic righteousness that flows from the fact that you've been transformed by the renewing power of the gospel. So this is produced by or springing up from intrinsic righteousness. Now, next one is, next point, it impact, impacts the worship of the receivers of your giving. Impacts the worship of the receivers of your giving. This is crazy right here. It says, you will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. God says, I will comprehensively enrich you. He didn't say make you rich financially, merely. And now, 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 your giving doesn't make you rich financially. God may never make you rich. If you give your entire salary for this year to get rich, you have your reward. Nothing. Now, now, however, God does return based on his sovereign deciding on what it looks like for him to be glorified and you reaping on that. But in order to recognize the harvest, you got to be able to appreciate the God who gives the harvest so that when he gives it, you can see it. Now, the harvest may never be in your finances, even though he does sometimes, based on giving, return to you more in order that you may do what? Give it again. <laughs> you thought it was for you to get an upgrade, didn't you? Amen. So he will enrich you in every single way of your life. And then he said, this will produce, he said, through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, you got to understand, they was poured in a mug in Jerusalem. Poor. So, so, so Paul puts the hootie hoo out to all other Christians, right? He goes, he, he, he puts out his bullhorn and calls all the Christians. Yo, he like, yo, Jerusalem's in need. Put aside some loot. Macedonians ain't got money. Cats, cats ain't got no sandals trying to find a way to get money. Put together little chains, clack out, gave it to Paul's boys. Then he goes to Colossia. Then he goes to Philippi. Then he, well, Philippi is Macedonia. Then he goes to Thessalonica. Well, Thessalonica is Macedonia. So he got, it, he got it among all of the poor churches. Then he goes to Corinth and asks Corinth, now y'all got loot. He said, come on, big Corinth. Pop it out. Right? Gets to Corinth. The Corinthians are being challenged. He said, I'm sending some boys there right now. They're going when ready to collection first day of week when y'all gather on Sunday. Y'all had a worship gathering. Call out an offering for the Jerusalem church. Every, they're going to pass the plate, clack a dough. They're going to put it all in there, money, everything. Cats going to come through, pray over the offering, and they're going to take it. They, they traveling in the desert, right? Traveling through the desert. Cats got spears. Somebody, I dare somebody try to steal the offering of God. I don't know how they carried it because they ain't like had checks. So they had to bring all of the actual coinages. They didn't like translate it into smaller dollars. They, what you gave, what you gave. So they traveling. Jerusalem praying. Cats on their knees before God. Saying, God. I know we're doing what we're supposed to do, but it's not adding up financially. We're struggling. We need you. God, will you come through for us? All I got, all, all my wife is able to do is breastfeed my children, but I got some older children, and I need to actually give them food different than that, God. 
Well, you provide God. Fathers and children and people are praying all over Jerusalem. Then all of a sudden, these Jews with Gentiles come in. A load of Gentiles rolled into Jerusalem with a caravan of loot. And then what would you do? God, in the name of Jesus, I bless you. Thank you, God, for you are provider. You're Jehovah. I'd have been hollering, running, shouting. Because of the sacrifices of those churches, it gives the ability for prayers to be answered. See, see, you're waiting for somebody else to, God to use, but God wants to use you to answer somebody's prayer. Let me make it a little bit plain for Epiphany Fellowship. Let me get February 2005, before there was an Epiphany Fellowship. My wife and I came on a site trip to Philly. Talked with this, this white dude on the phone that his church was, the church that he pastors was three years old. My wife and I go into his office, and we like, we, we've been all over the place asking people for resources to help plant this church. So I go and I sit down in this dude's office. He got this, I said, dang, nice office. We sit down in front of him, talking. He said, yeah, Brother Mason, you know, you know, my stewardship team, we, we've been praying. We were praying just last night. And all of us circled up in a room. And we said, this is church. I don't know this guy well. He came through a recommendation of another guy. But I, I just, something, God's going to do something through this church. So I want us to pray, and then I want us to decide on a number to give this church. This will be our first church plan. All these guys, about five to eight of them started praying. Pastor comes up out of prayer and says, what's the number? One guy says, wow. He said, that's the number I thought. That's the number I thought. That's the number I thought. So he sat in front of us. He said, and we like, you know, he's going to get a couple of hundred dollars. He said, we're going to support Epiphany Fellowship for $100,000. I looked at my wife. Now, they don't know I wanted to split the desk in half like a Hassan chop up in that thing. You know what I'm saying? I wanted to go Hassan chop. I wanted to go crazy up in that junk. You know what I'm saying? Because that was crazy for me. Then, 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 then their support was running out. I go to this conference a few months before, preach at this conference, met all these big wig preachers. I'm the little dude up in the room. I don't even know why I'm there preaching. Got a chance to connect. All these dudes gave me their numbers. I started meeting them with them for breakfast and stuff. Look, we need resources for this church plan to be able to do what God has called us to do. I'm driving down Broad Street in front of the, um, in front of the school system building. Uh, 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 and I'm driving. I'm on the phone with the dude. I sent the 150-page presentation. He presented it to his elders. I'm in the car. I don't know who I was in the car. Pastor Doug, was I with you? I don't know who I was with. Anyway, I was in the car, going down broad in a hoopty. Amen. I'm driving down broad, and, and this guy said, I said, he said, we've been, we, he said, you know what? He said, we're going to partner with you all for three years. I said, oh, praise God, man. You know, you, you got to understand where I was at that point. I was, oh, okay, praise God. He said, yeah, we want to uh, partner with Epiphany Fellowship for three years, $20,000 a year for the next three years. And we're going to give an extra year. This was September 2006. He said, we're going to start, we're going to do an extra year and it's going to start in September. We're going to give $20,000 between September and December. And then they re-upped it for another two years, just recently. So I'm sitting up like, so that's $120,000 plus. Then they say, oh, then we want to give another ten. So we're going to give $30,000 next year. Then, over, then I'm just worshiping God and blessing God because God provided for his mission. God provided for kingdom mission so that people can be impacted by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God wants to provide for his mission, not just for you. I can give you story upon story of tears and weeping. 
and times. Some of you all who were with us before we even launched, when we was in the basement praying for different things to happen, and God has exceeded our expectations because we just wanted to rent in the building. We used to say, God, if you just give us space. And God says, I'm going to do better than that. I do exceedingly and above all that you ask or think, according to the power that is at work within you. And so instead of just giving you space in the building, I'm going to give you the building. And I'm going to throw in a couple of lots with it in a house and some other things. Because what I want to do through this ministry is so important and it's bigger than y'all. I have to provide for this mission and therefore I'm going to ignite hearts. But I don't want y'all to punk out. Because the same thing that I did for you, I want it to be like napalm. I want it to explode into you being that for someone else who is in need in the same fashion across the globe. And so when Paul is talking about the, the beauty of this legacy and the beauty of this giving, that they may be enriched in every single way and that it will ignite thanksgiving to God, that happens both on a mass, macro scale and a micro scale. And God will even do it in your life. But then he gives really a beastly statement in verse 13. Which brings me to the last point. Your giving will cause the recipient to see the glory of the gospel. Look at verse 13. He says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Wow. This is interesting. By the approval of this service. See, the Gentiles were looked at as second-class citizens in the kingdom. They were looking. And so, therefore, when the, when the Jews had to receive an offering from the Gentiles, it was going to affirm that they were actually Christian, that they had truly been impacted by the beauty of the gospel. That word approve means um, to put proof that something is genuine. It means as a fruit, this would cause the Jerusalem Christians to see the authenticity of the Christians, Christ, uh, the Christianity of the Gentiles. This points to the character of their service. And so it, it, it first calls, they will glorify God because of your submission. This word submission, interestingly enough here, means the state of uh, subject, uh, to be subject or subordinate as opposed to setting oneself as a controller. The system of ordered relationships requires recognition of one's proper place in the structure. I like to lay it out like this, in obedience, but it also means to fall in line with one's ordained rank in the kingdom. This is humility at its best, viewing yourself as God views you. So this submission based on this is beautiful. In other words, they utilize their money to say, I'm going to submit my money and say my money has rank. In other words, what is God's ordained usage for this aspect of the resources that I'm supposed to set aside to give for kingdom impact and I'm going to give it? He says, flowing from your confession of the gospel. This is a statement that most commentators have struggled with. And I think it's a powerful statement. And I think, it's a, I think it's a beautiful help for us to really work through some things that we need to work through in our understanding of this. It says, it says flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Now, flowing isn't in the Greek, but it's the sense of the text. 
And, and, and what he means here, your confession of the gospel uh, points to a statement of allegiance or loyalty that leads to public expression of confessing and bearing witness to something. So this confession is basically him pointing back to the fact that you trusted Christ as Savior. It wasn't just a profession. It was a confession. Now, there are professions of faith, in other words, fronters, then there are confessions of faith that are true confessions of the reality of what God did to renew, and you can be assured in that. Your salvation can be assured, right? Now, in light of that assurance, he says, this work that you're going to give is going to make them honor the God of the gospel because of the beauty of the gospel. Now, let's get some clarity to this, because... Right now, you know, and I'm a, in, a, in a few weeks, once we kind of dissipate the series, I'm going to do a sermon, just a standalone sermon on, before, before we get into our next series, on what does it mean to be gospel-centered? Because, because one of the things that, that's happening is people are throwing around gospel-centered and really are, is making really gospel-centered a catch-all phrase for everything and not give, giving clarity and focus to what it means to be gospel-centered. So I'm going to give you a preview of that in light of the need to understand the text that we're in. Are y'all with me? So when we talk about gospel-centered, what does that mean? It's our orientation towards everything in life as centered on and fueled by and flowing from the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Our orientation towards everything in life as centered on, fueled by, flowing from the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you, if you want to get more scriptural understanding of that also, look at Romans chapter Romans chapter 16, 25. Um, um, uh, um, you can look at uh, 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 Ephesians chapter 3. Um, um, you can look at a multitude and look at the first 10 verses of Romans chapter 1. There are multiple verses that you can look at. Look at Galatians chapter 3 on this idea of gospel centeredness. Look at Colossians chapter uh, 1 verses, um, verses um, 18 through 23. Look at all of those verses, okay? And so, uh, and, and because this is a part of the Christian life. However, there's definite, there's, the, there's unique definitions to this that we need to really understand. So gospel-centered at its core means being first clear about the specifics of the gospel message. That God is the initiator of redemption through redemptive history. He climaxes this history in Jesus Christ. Man is utterly sinful, raggedy, toe up from the flow up, and unable to merit the favor of God without God. <laughs> you missed that. Therefore, God initiates contact. God initiates contact. God isn't lost. Man is lost. So you didn't found the Lord, okay? You didn't. He found you because he's not lost. He's found, okay? He knows where he is because he's everywhere. Okay, therefore, God initiates contact with man through the descending... From heaven to earth of Jesus, birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross for sin in order to reinitiate the relationship and fellowship between both God and man. That's the gospel. Now, how do we extract gospel-centeredness from that based on this text and our understanding of it so we can stop throwing this word around, right? Let's do it. The idea of gospel-centered means interpreting the scripture in light of the redemptive work of God realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In essence, 
We work because we are in a relationship with God, not to get in one. Philippians 1.12. All our works flow from Christ's work on the cross, Colossians 1.29. Now, let's talk about some misnomers about what it means to be gospel-centered. These are some big, huge misnomers and reductions of the gospel. I'm going to spend more time on this in a few weeks, but in order to get this, we have to get this barrier out of the way just a little bit so we can understand how it's used here. Okay, a few things, four things. First, using the idea of the gospel or gospel-centeredness to replace what the Bible explicitly says. In other words, gospel-centered means an aspect of the gospel. We'll talk about that in a second. I call this a shadow hermeneutic. Making the Bible state what we want it to, to say based on our desired end or focus. This comes from using part of the counsel of God rather than holding the whole counsel in tension. Human effort that believes that God's favor can be earned. Number two, human effort that believes that God's uh, favor can be earned. This is moralism and religiosity. Number three, the other end of this spectrum of number two is that we are freed from all the consequences of sin since we are quote-unquote saved. Therefore, I can sin willfully and expect for there to be no long-lasting consequences of my sin, even if I repent, 1 Peter 2.20. This is licentiousness and irreligiosity. Okay? Number four, using gospel-centeredness to reduce the character of God. In other words, reducing gospel-centeredness to one of God's, one or three or four or five of God's attributes and leaving out all the rest of them, that's called an idol. That's another God. Let me give you some examples as we zoom in to understanding exactly how it's being used in this text. This is very, very important. Y'all still tracking with me? All right. Let's look, at, let's look at several areas where we need to get clarity on this. Acceptance. There's a religious view of acceptance. There's a gospel-centered view of acceptance. Religious view of acceptance means I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Let's look at motivation. See, you just got that, didn't you? Motivation. Motivation. There's a religious motivation and there's a gospel motivation. Religious motivation is based on fear and insecurity. Gospel-centered motivation is based on gratefulness and joy. <laughs> obedience. There's a religious understanding of obedience and a gospel-centered understanding of obedience. Religious understanding of obedience, I obey God in order to get things from God. Gospel-centered is, I obey to delight in God and resemble him. <laughs> gospel-centered understanding of circumstances and a religious understanding of circumstances. I can go on all day. When circumstances in my life come religious, this is what religion says, when, I, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I am angry at God or myself since I believe that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. Gospel-centered understanding of circumstances, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle. I do. But I know my punishment fell on Jesus and that while God may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within this trial. I could keep going. I'll just stop on identity because we're going to lay this thing out in a few weeks, but it has everything to do with giving. A uh, religious view of identity. My identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work and how moral I am 
And so I must look down on those who, who, who I perceive as immoral and lazy. Gospel-centered understanding of identity. My identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for me. I am saved by sheer grace. I can't look down on those who believe or practice uh, something different from me. I am only saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And I am what I am by grace. So, I'm going to spend a lot of time in the next few weeks on understanding all of the spheres of this because we've confusturated it. We have. But what does this have to do with giving? Everything. Everything. If you're insecure, if your identity is in what you do, if you are critical without the scriptures, if your criticism is to look down on others to puff yourself up, then when it comes to giving, you're going to give out of a heart to find satisfaction in giving, not the giver. Therefore, giving should not cause us to feel more accepted by God. Why? Because you're as accepted by God as you're ever going to be. Dang, that was me. I'd be worshiping. Giving should not be motivated to impress God because he owns it anyway, so it don't press him. So how are you going to impress the owner? It's, it's mine. Like, you giving to me what's mine? Like, that don't impress me. Or other people, because it won't last long and you will already have your reward. Giving should not point, be a point of obedience to get from God, but because of our affection for God. Giving should not be done in anger coming from frustrating circumstances, but it should be given in gratitude. <laughs> Giving should not be done to, to boost your personal confidence in yourself and your righteousness, but because of your confidence in the one who provides. Finally, giving should not build your identity. Listen to this. Should not build your identity, but is a response to your identity being found in Christ. So, when we talk about this idea here, when he says this would be the impact of it, God's people would recognize when they received it in Jerusalem that they had been arrogant, that they had been, that they had been puffy and critical and looking down upon people. And they're going to see, based on the giving of the Gentiles, that the gospel had impacted people who, more who had less information about God than they did. Your knowledge of God only by itself, because we all must have knowledge of God. But your knowledge of God alone doesn't make you appreciate God more. <laughs> that, you, you, it, 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 these people had less Bible, less information about God, but responded more powerfully to the gospel than the people who had prophets, priests, scribes, lawyers, Sadducees, Pharisees, philosophies, and all of this stuff, and the law of the elders more powerfully. In the specific area of the gospel, you don't apply all gospel principles to this. That's why we don't reduce it. You apply one gospel principle to giving. Because God has given to us, in response to him giving to us, we give to others. And they're giving. 
in response to that. And God blesses people because of it. So now you should become a giver. There's no fear in giving. Therefore, we must become givers. Get out of your mind the fact that you've been in bad churches, quote unquote. Um, every church got issues. Um, but, 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 but where there were five offerings. God, okay, it's, get over it. Get over it. I don't want to hear about that no more. I don't want to hear about your bad experiences with giving. I don't want to hear about you. I mean, if you need shepherding through something, that's one thing. But you need to move on. Because you're using bad experiences to not move forward in the Christian faith in a healthy way. And so those bad experiences that you had at, at, at those other church has now turned into bitterness and it's corroded the entirety of your spiritual life, therefore unenabling you to move forward, to be spiritually vital, to be a missionary, a giver, and a disciple maker. Shut it down, give it to the cross, and walk away from it or get some counseling. Because it's time. It's, God doesn't have time for us to wallow because it's easy to point to the faults of someone else all the time and using it as a point of stagnance for your own spiritual life. So now it's time for you to move on. And God is saying, I want you to take your grip off of those people who hurt you. I have. I have. You're no longer there at that church. But they still have a grip on you like you're still there. That's not their fault. That's yours. Because Christ died on the cross to be your expiation, the removal of guilt and grief of sin. Therefore, you need to apply the gospel to that, saying, God, help me to release them. Even though we have bad, I have bad issues that people over there I don't talk to, release them. Release right in the might, in Jesus' name, release them. Release that bad experience and move on. And ask God to give you to grace to speak well of them and to think well of them, even though you will never go to church there again. Because, it because your spiritual life will not be right if you keep living in light of that hurt. Hurt is a booger for the Christian life. Unless you go to the one who was hurt more than all of us. <laughs> Have you been hurt that bad? tortured to the inch of your life and still having to talk and communicate to fulfill scripture? No. You've never been in a torture chamber. Jesus, he's thinking about fulfilling the scriptures. I would have lost my mind. I just passed out. Uh -huh. I just passed out. But Jesus on the cross looking at people, talking to them. Women, weep for yourselves. I'd have been like, get away! Kill them all, God. Kill them all. I'd have been wilding. But Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. <laughs> and then he's so sovereign, he knew when he was going to die. And he says, to tell us die. I fully paid for sin. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. He gave his life. No one took it. He gave it willfully while in pain. When you're going through pain, that's when you should be giving the most. And so God wants to restore every area of your life.
But you got to repent of what you're not allowing him to restore you from. I'm talking to somebody right now. God can't restore you and reconcile you unless you repent. And maybe you're not a Christian here today. And you want to be restored to a relationship with God. You can't be restored by praying. You can't. You can't be restored by giving. <laughs> you can't be restored by going to Bible study. You can't be restored by going to church. It doesn't restore you. Jesus Christ restores. If you'll repent, if you'll turn from your way of thinking to his and have faith in him alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Christ plus nothing equals salvation. Christ plus nothing. Don't bring anything to the table. You cannot be saved if you bring anything to the table but your raggediness with repentance and faith. <laughs> and none of it counts for nothing except for the faith. God will take away the raggediness and the mess. So why don't you turn towards him today? You grew up in the church, but you're not saved because you're basing your salvation on growing up in the church, not Christ. Father, pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ that based on the word of God, that based on the scriptures, Lord God, that you would um, save mightily today. Transform lives from the inside out. Lord God, help us to see giving is not a curse. Help giving the culture of how we understand giving in the church to be changed. Lord God, help us to be passionate givers, loving givers, exuberant givers. We love you, God. We honor you that you provided an opportunity for us to be forgiven in Christ. Bless us in the rest of our gathering. In Christ's name, amen. If you're here today and you wanted to trust Christ for salvation.